0: Take your Bibles. Turn to Psalm 24. Children, sixth grade and below, you are dismissed to go to your time of study. The mass exodus. Psalm 24, again, welcome everyone, glad that you're here today. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, you don't have to turn there, just let me read you this passage. Timothy says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. What does it mean to take hold of life that is truly life? We uh, live in an age where people are clamoring for life they're demanding life they're demanding rights they're demanding happiness they're demanding everything so that they can have life because they feel like life is what is here now what is in the moment but Life is the life as God gives life, and as he sustains life, and as he creates life. And so this morning, we're going to talk about life. We're going to talk about life. Now, I want to cue up something. I think there are certain elephants in the room, so to speak, when it comes to issues within the church today about life, and the future, and happiness, and holiness, and You know, one of the issues that is obviously prominent within um, the church today and within our society has to do with homosexuality and gay marriage. And I've had some of you ask me, when am I going to speak on this? When am I going to talk on this directly? And I want to let you know, I want to cue you up now, uh, that I've decided to do this in a kind of a roundtable discussion on a Saturday morning in September, And I'd like to do a series of discussions, not just about this topic, but about other topics uh, that have to do with tough issues that the church is facing and what does the Bible really, really say about these issues. So you can mark your calendar for Saturday, September the 19th, 9 o'clock. We'll have this discussion. Uh, If you'd like to invite anybody you want to come, it'll really be a Bible look at what the Bible says, it will also be a look at some of the prominent um, views within the church that are in support of gay marriage. Uh, I want to address those and look at those and look at things from a biblical standpoint. There's a book by a guy named Matthew Vines called God and the Gay Christian uh, that I want to do a review of, and there's also a book by Kevin DeYoung called uh, a more traditional view, but a great book, written by a young man on what does the Bible say about homosexuality. So if you'd like to come to that or invite anybody to come, that's going to be Saturday, September 19th at 9 o'clock here. And I'll take questions and we'll have a discussion about the topic. But in, in view of things, it, it really is a discussion about what is life. What is life? What does life entail? How do we seize upon life? Is life about wealth? Is life is life about sexual orientation? Is life about the future, the past, the present, the happiness, the job, the marriage, the children? Uh, what what is really life all about? We are people who are trying to run hard after life, but the problem is we don't really know what we're running after. We're just running hoping that we stumble across life at some point. Uh, so today, we want to look at life. What is life? In 2005, there was a guy by the name of Dan Freeman, who was a retired consultant in New York. Dan, uh, one day, decided that it was really... He started it on January 1st of 2005. He had a vision, a dream that came upon him. And the vision dream was this, I'm going to visit 1,000 bars in New York City this calendar year. There you go. What a goal. 1,000 bars I'm going to hit in New York City. First of all, that would probably not be that hard to find 1,000 bars in New York City. He began to blog about his journey. At the beginning of his journey, he said, I'm sorry, I'm... I want to hold on to the seriousness of this, but at the beginning of his journey, he said this, if you don't have a dream, how can you make a dream come true? He blogged about his adventures, and when he reached the end, here's what he wrote in an article for Forbes magazine. Yeah, Forbes magazine printed a whole article on Dan Freeman and his attempt to visit 1,000 bars in one year. He said, "When on December 31st, I had my final drink at the Pioneer in Manhattan. All the local television stations covered the affair. It was gratifying to see how many people showed up to celebrate the occasion. Some I had met along the way, and others had just read about my journey on my blog or in the newspapers. Here's what I want you to see. He says this, much as I enjoyed my journey, it wasn't something I would ever do again. I missed being able to just settle in at my local bar for a couple of beers and being able to stick around for more than one drink if I ran into an interesting crowd. Well, okay, sometimes I did hang around. But I had my objective, and I never lost sight of it. Here's the tragedy that I read between the lines in Dan's account Sometimes you have this dream and you go after your dream and your dream is there and you find out your dream is non-sustaining. It's really not life-giving. Such we find as people who go after money hard or a career job or a, a career hard or a spouse or children or whatever. They get the dream and what do they find? They find that the dream is really not all that life-giving. Here's the truth we who believe the Bible have to hold on to, and it's this. Life comes from God. It all centers upon him. Anytime we turn to something else as a source of life, we're going to have a challenge, and our dream is going to be found lacking. Today's psalm is a psalm about life. It's a psalm about worship. For those of you who are just kind of coming in today, we're at the end of a study on psalms. We've been looking at it for 11 weeks, looking at various psalms. Remember, the 150 psalms that we have in the Bible are really like studying a hymn book. Uh, It's one of the reasons they're so hard to read, because many times you, you really just don't study a hymn book, especially without the tunes. You just have the words it becomes a challenge, and you're trying to get the story, the flow of it. We love the beauty of the language, but there are really five different books in the book of Psalms. It's divided into, it was written by numerous authors over thousands of years, so there are so many different kinds of psalms. I gave you a study handout at the very beginning of the journey we were making together. If you didn't get that, there's still some in the foyer where we divided the psalms up into the different types and books, and it'll help you read the psalms. And that's really what I'm trying to, trying to do, is give you a help on how to read the beauty of this, this book. But today's psalm, Psalm 24 that we're going to look at, and then we'll finish up with Psalm 150 next week, a psalm of worship. This is both a psalm about life and a psalm about worship, it really, we though we know it says a psalm of David, we don't know exactly the background to it. It's been speculated that it's a psalm that was sung as the Ark of the Covenant was brought up to the temple uh, for worship. Some have speculated that because the temple wasn't built yet that it was a psalm of David prior to when he brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem for the first time after it had been uh, lost to the Philistines, so to speak, and then he had to have it camp out for a while because he didn't transport a ride. It took it a while to get back to Jerusalem. And as he come into Jerusalem, remember David was dancing. Remember that whole scene, uh, David uh, dancing naked. We promise that won't be at the Old Ordination next week. Uh, David dancing uh, before the Lord as he brings the Ark of the Covenant up into the, the tabernacle that this could have been the psalm that he wrote and sung for that occasion, though we, we, really, we really don't know. I'd like for us to stand and read this psalm together, Uh, Psalm 24, read it out loud together, and then we're going to look at what, what does this psalm speak to us about life. So stand up with me and let's read Psalm 24. I'll have it on the screen for you to follow and for us to read together. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord And vindication from God, his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him. Who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors. That the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Lord, we pray this morning that we would come to the realization of who you are and how you bestow us with life. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. A great psalm, one of my favorites, one of the beauties of the the book is this psalm about the Lord and the earth being everything in his scope. So let's look at some points about how God gives us life, and they seem fairly obvious, but sometimes the most obvious things in the Bible are the hardest ones to get, are they not? I mean, really, we have to keep revisiting these things over and over again because we live in a culture and we live in a place that tries to twist these truths. And if we're not careful, we'll buy into some of the twisted truths uh, that are around us. So here's the first point. God owns life. God owns life. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world, and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Now I know that sometimes in the Psalms it speaks in hyperbole, meaning it just goes way over the top to to say a truth, but this truth is absolutely true. Everything in the world, me, you, the world, everything we see around us belongs not to us, but to him. He is the owner of everything including life itself it exists by him he's the one who created it he, we're going to see in a minute he's the one who sustains it it is for him he is the owner therefore we are recipients of what he's given us this is a really important truth that we we have to get a hold of is that god is the owner of everything which means if he owns everything then anything i got came as a gift from him are you with me that's why it says in james that every good and perfect gift every good and perfect really every gift comes from god every gift comes from god he is the one who is the giver when we get this when we get this into our thick heads at some point, it will change the way we view everything around us. In other words, possessions are not really possessions because I don't get to possess them, right? I mean, they're not mine to possess. The biblical idea is that God is the king, he is the owner of everything, and then everything that he's given to me as a gift, I'm managing on his behalf. So I'm a steward is the biblical term. We don't use the term steward. We use the term manager. We're we're managing God's resources on his behalf. He owns everything. There are many, many, many passages over and over again throughout the Bible that speak on this idea. Psalm 50 verse 10, "For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills." By the way, this is not David talking. This is God talking. God's the one who's saying, I, everything's mine. The forest animals, little squirrels, little bunny foo-foo, everything is mine. Everything is mine. Acts seventeen twenty-five. he says, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. He is the giver of all gifts, including life itself. Now, if we get this truth, then we understand that God, the owner, really has all the rights. Which means, what rights do I have? What rights do, this is a really important question, what rights do I have? Really, you've got nothing. Unless God gives it to you. Those certain inalienable rights that you have, they are a gift from God. Even the rights that you think you have are really rights that he's loaning to you. Rights that he's giving to you. It's said that Bishop Edwin Hughes once delivered a sermon on God's ownership. Uh, Bishop Hughes is from an earlier generation, 1800s. God's ownership of all that we have. And in his congregation, there was a wealthy businessman who took offense at this message that God owned everything. That week, he called up the bishop and asked him to come to have lunch with him at his estate. Any, anytime you have not a home but an estate, you're living in a whole different kind of circle than me. During their visit, the man walked Bishop Hughes through his estate, the gardens, the woodlands, the farm, Coming back to the great house, they stood overlooking all the property of the man who then said to Bishop Hughes, now are you going to tell me that all this does not belong to me? To which Bishop Hughes smiled and replied, ask me that question in a hundred years. You get the point. If we can't take it with us, we're really not the owners of it. Understanding God's ownership will really give us balance in life. In this self-centered, very materialistic world that we live in, if we can really get an understanding, why why does Paul tell Timothy that we need to understand life that is really life? He goes back and says something like this. Look, God gives you everything you have and that you need, but for what purpose? So that you can give it away to others. You're not the owner. You're just a conduit of the blessings of God. It's not to just make its deal, its home in you. It's, it's an idea that, oh, God, I, I'm being blessed with what you've given me. Thank you for food. Thank you for clothing. Thank you for my home. Now may I be a conduit of your blessings. We as Americans especially, we think we're the recipients, and we're going to hoard all we can. It's really important to be hoarders, and I'm trying to say that uh, that word carefully, hoarders in this day and age. It's really, that's who we are. Instead, we need to let it go. Just let it pass through and bless the world around us. Deuteronomy 8.18 says this, But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, And so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. Even the ability for you to work, to get wealth, is what? It's a gift from God. He's the one who gives you that ability. If you're a great salesman, don't be so proud. Thanks, Stevie. I wasn't aiming that toward you, but... Uh, but if you're, a, if you're a great speaker, don't be so proud. If you're a great computer technician, if you're a great mother, if you're a great father, don't take pride in those things. Take pride in the fact that God has given you the ability. It's all about him. It's to his glory. That's why we do everything for him. First Chronicles 29.12 says, Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. I know I'm hammering this point hard, but we have to somehow get a hold in this day and age that God is the owner of everything, and I'm his servant, or I'm his steward. But that leads me naturally to the second point, which kind of is inherent, and I've already hinted about it. If God owns everything, everything that I have, including my life, comes from him. It's a gift from him. Look at verses 3 through 6 of Psalm 24. He says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Now look up here for just a second. This is really, really a great idea. The psalmist is asking, who who gets to come into the holy place? Who gets to come into God's presence? Here's the key. If God owns everything, including his presence... And the psalmist is asking the question, who gets to come there? Who gets to set the rules on who gets to come there? God does. Now, does that seem very fair to you and me? Well, obviously, the way I framed it, I think, makes it sound fair. But many times we look at the things that the psalmist is going to list, that the Bible's going to talk about, and we say, you know what, that doesn't seem too fair to me. That doesn't seem right to me. Here's what seems right to me. Because it seems right to me, I'm going to set up a pathway to God that allows for this or this or that. Except we're forgetting God owns everything. Because God owns everything, everything is a gift from him, including life. He's the one who gets to set up the path. He's the one who gets to set up the rules. It says here, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. The psalmist gives some particular requirements that show holiness is the standard by which we get to come into God's presence. I'm in the process of helping my uh, fourth child get into college. Um, I know that some of you have been through this routine before. This is my fourth rodeo, so to speak, of helping a child get into college. And if you'll remember, you send your grades, your test scores, your volunteer hours, um, beauty photos. I know that's new to this one. Um, You send whatever they need, immunization stuff. you got to send all this stuff to... A college admissions department who then takes all of your stuff and they get to decide if you get into their college or not. God is the one who gets to decide who gets to come into his presence. The psalmist gives some pretty strong admission requirements to get into God's presence. Does he not? I mean, look at them. Clean hands, pure heart. Do you know... I? I think we're all eliminated. I mean, really, who who has clean hands and a totally pure heart who's never sworn or by what is false or lifted up his soul to an idol? Bad news. We're all on the outs. Even in the Old Testament, they knew they couldn't meet these requirements. So God gave them a sacrificial system by which the sins that they had committed were kind of kind of put off. They they killed an animal to say, God, we, we acknowledge that we sinned. Here's the blood, and by this blood, we ask that you would overlook our sins so that we can, in turn, come into your presence. Ultimately, God sends um, a lamb, his son, his one and only son, to die so that all of us could be included. And our sins not just overlooked or passed over, but that our sins could be forgiven. Because without that, we would never be right in God's sight. Again, this whole idea of holiness, God overlooking our sins so that we're right in his sight and can come into his presence, clean hands, pure heart, never lifting up a soul to an idol or swearing by what is false. We can't do that on our own. We'll never be right in God's sight. But God did it through Jesus. He, he had Jesus come to this earth. Jesus died on the cross. His blood was shed for us so that our sins could be forgiven and we could be made right in God's sight so that we could receive life. The Bible talks about this standing before God being right in his sight as righteousness. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, God made him, meaning Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, again in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. We become right in God's sight because Jesus took all of our sins on him on the cross. There is only one way to ascend the hill of the Lord. There's only one way to come into God's presence. Jesus, when he talks about this truth in John, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets to ascend the hill of the Lord except through me. He gives us life. We do not belong to ourselves, therefore we belong to the Lord. I've used this illustration before, but I heard Bishop T.D. Jakes one time. I used to watch Oprah every day, and Oprah was interviewing T.D. I'm just kidding, people. Come on, stay with me. (laughs) But I saw an interview with T.D. Jakes, where Oprah was interviewing him, and she said to uh, Bishop Jakes, something to the effect like this, aren't there many roads that lead to God? You know, that's that universalism kind of philosophy. And Bishop Jakes said, you know, Oprah, there's only one way to God. He goes, I believe there are many roads that lead to Jesus, but there's only one way to God. And I thought that was a great way of saying it. Really, there are many paths, but they all at some point converge on Christ. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. Again, in our human perspective, we might say this doesn't seem fair. Look, you're right, it's totally unfair. We shouldn't be included at all. I mean, really, there's nothing we've ever done that should say, oh God, bless me, give me life. Instead, he made a way for us to come into his presence by sending his son, by making him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become right in his sight. Now, here's the great news. This should totally change our perspective about who we are. You might say, well, wait a minute. You've just been telling me that I'm pretty worthless. I I really, I hope you don't hear that. What I'm hearing is you had. I hope you're hearing, is that you had no way out, but God made a way. He owns life. He gives you life. Therefore, you are someone special in his sight, not because of who you are, but because he has written his name on your hearts. There's a movie from years back. I, I probably watched it, I don't know how many times, at my house, but Toy Story As a toy. And if, I know some of you don't, do movies at all, so I'm going to show you the whole movie. Um, (laughs) Stories about a collection of toys. Just hang with me for the premise if you've never seen it. Uh, These toys uh, come alive. They're owned by a little boy named Andy, and whenever a human is not in the room, the toys come alive, Mr. Potato Head and all the toys. They start interacting with one another. And the two main characters are Woody, who is this... uh, a stuffed cowboy for lack of a better term an older toy and a new toy comes on the scene by the name of Buzz Lightyear who's a space ranger and he's a he's really a cool toy especially when compared to to Woody. And in the, in the original movie one of the tensions is that Woody who's been around for a while knows that he's a toy. He knows he's just a toy. But Buzz comes on the scene And he thinks he's a real space ranger. He doesn't know he's just a toy. He thinks he's a real astronaut who can fly and a real space hero. At one point in the movie, Woody just yells at him, you're not a space ranger, you're an action figure. A child's plaything. Later in the movie, Buzz tries to fly off some stairs to do something and he falls down the stairs and he breaks something on him, uh, which gets repaired. But he realizes the truth that what Woody has been saying all along is actually true. He's just hes just a toy. He's grief-stricken. He's disillusioned. His pride is broken. Later on in the movie, Woody and Buzz are taken prisoner by the evil neighbor boy who's going to strap him to a rocket and burn him up. Um, and that's where we have this movie clip. Oh, Buzz, you've had a big fault. You must not be thinking clearly. No, Woody. For the first time, I am thinking clearly. You were right all along. I'm not a space ranger. I'm just a toy, a stupid little insignificant toy. Whoa, hey, wait a minute. Being a toy is a lot better than being a, a space ranger. Yeah, right. No, it is. Look, over in that house is a kid who thinks you are the greatest. And it's not because you're a space ranger, pal. It's because you're a toy. You are his Toy. But why would Andy want me? Why would Andy want you? Look at you. You're a Buzz Lightyear. Any other toy would give up his moving parts just to be you. You've got wings. You glow in the dark. You talk. Your helmet does that, that, that whoosh thing. You are a cool toy. As a matter of fact, you're too cool. I mean... I mean, what chance does a toy like me have against a Buzz Lightyear action figure? All I can do is... There's a snake in my boots. Why would Andy ever want to play with me when he's got you? I'm the one that should be strapped to that rocket. You should get out of here while you can. Buzz, what are you doing? I thought you were- Come on, Sheriff. There's a kid over in that house who needs us. Now let's get... I love the part where he looks down at his foot. And Andy's name is written on his shoe. And uh, suddenly everything changes for him. He realizes his significance is not in the fact he's an act. He realizes it's because who he belongs to. When we realize that God owns life and God is the one who gives life and he has given us life, it should change our, to- our whole perspective. You are not a compilation of the things you've done or the things you've gathered. You're not even a compilation of your family and your children. You are who God says you are. You have been written, not only in your heart, but he has written you, according to the book of Revelation, he's written you on the palm of his hand. Your name is written in the book of life. And that should change our perspective. We are his. We're more than conquerors. We're more than overcomers. Now, see, I would think you'd be getting really excited by now about who you are in the Lord because I know, like you, even this week, I've battled in my thinking who I am based on what is going right in my life and what is not going right. Amen? I know we've all at some point this week battled, oh, man, This this overwhelming sense of who we are based on what we've done. What I'm telling you, people, is if we ever get a hold of this, that God is the owner and that God gives life and we belong to him, it will so change our perspective that we'll launch out in faith in a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. Leads me to the third point, and it's this. God sustains life. Not only does he own it, And give it, but he sustains it. Lift up your heads, verses 7 through 10, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. Who sustains life? The king sustains life. The king of glory, he's the one who gives life, does he not? He's the one who's mighty in battle. This is great news too. Not only does the Lord give life, the Lord own life, the Lord sustain life, if we really get a hold of this, this should free us up to live life in the way that God has called us to. In other words, we won't... We won't be concerned just about ourselves. We'll understand that our body really is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God's presence indwells us, and therefore, we're to honor him with our bodies. He. This passage really altered my understanding of who I am and what I'm supposed to be doing way long ago. I've told my story before about how I came to know the Lord at an early age. I lived a life trying to really be good, trying to really be holy. I, I was raised in the Baptist church, really tried to do all the Baptist things, uh, went to church, read the Bible, uh, tried to live a life that I was, you know, I, I didn't drink, I didn't dance, I didn't have sex. Um, you know, all the things you're told that are really make you holy, And I was totally miserable when I realized that all of these things that I did or didn't do were not, they were all about me. And there just was no life to it. There was no, I was doing the right stuff, but there was no life. Why? Because I came to a point where I realized, look, this is about God's ownership. He gives me life. Not only that, but he puts his presence within me to live the life that I'm supposed to live. I'm responding to him, I'm not trying to get his approval. And then it freed me up to, to really share a life with others. 1 Thessalonians 2.8 says, We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you, not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us when we realize the life of God and that it indwells us and instills us and fills us, we then are free to do what? Give life away, to live life, to share with others. I don't know about you, but I get so consumed with myself. I get so consumed with trying to live my life that if I'm not careful, I don't really think about helping you live your life. And we're all like that. If we... If we're, we're just hoarders and we're trying to seize upon life and we're trying to gather to ourselves, then we're not free to really understand God's ownership, God's gift, God's sustenance. That means we are free to give away life. I want to show you uh, one more video and then we're going to close. I'm going to pray for us. This is a video by a, a corporation called, it's an unusual name, it's called Soul Pancake. And uh, yes, it's a running video, but just go with me, um, uh, just go with me about what this means to share life with others. And what I want you to see, there's, there's a quote by a girl at the very end, so stay with it to the very end, so that you can see this quote at the very end. I think it'll bless you. Here comes the runner. Could I run with you? Sure. Is that okay? Yeah. Hey, could I run with you? Yeah. Can I just join your jog? Just do it. I'm just about done, but I'll go with you to the end. Okay. I'm Asia Morgan. Nice to meet you, Morgan. 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 Thirty seconds. They're coming towards you, Station One. First signs going up. Now. Morgan! Morgan. 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 Is that your name? right at the end I was going to quit thank you guys to me life is not just what comes to me but what I get to give away to you and in giving to you I encourage and not only that people but please listen to me carefully life is not about us but it's about out there sharing the life that God has blessed us with, with the world around us, in order that they too would know this king of glory. Back in the early 1900s, 1800s really, there was a guy by the name, his really unusual name, Mount B. Davenport Babcock, and he wrote a hymn. He was a minister in New York, and he used to go out on hikes, and he would hike around the Niagara area, and he wrote a famous poem that then became a hymn entitled, "This is my Father's World." And the final stanza of it says this: "This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems all so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns." Let the earth be glad. People, God owns life, God gives life, God sustains life. Our job is to share the life of the God, our King, with the world around us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your presence and power in our lives. Lord, we are so grateful that you rule and you reign completely. That every good and perfect gift comes from you. That every part of life is because of who you are and what you've blessed us with. And this morning, Lord, I pray that your presence would prevail in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, we thank you. We are grateful. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Stand up with me. I'm going to speak a prayer blessing over you. You're going to be dismissed. Hopefully, you'll stay for lunch, and we can share our life together. Uh, hopefully, even if you didn't bring anything, you may feel guilty, like, oh, I forgot. I didn't bring something. Don't worry about it. Um, just come downstairs. We'll have plenty of food. It'll, it'll, it'll be a great time of sharing with one another, and we look forward, forward to it. Uh, if you have any questions about us or would like somebody to call you, there's a white card in your chair in front of you. Just Fill it out, drop it out at the welcome counter. Before you leave, we'll have one of our staff people pray for you. Let me speak this blessing over you, and then you'll be dismissed. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or even imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. I love you. Have a great, great day in the Lord, and see you downstairs.